If you want to, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles. We're going to spend a little time in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we're not going to go there right away, uh, but we will get there eventually. But you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to. Um, A little further back from there, and you don't have to turn here, is uh, Luke. The book of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. And uh, in chapter 8, you find a familiar story. And uh, it's one of Jesus' more familiar stories. We call it the parable of the sower. And uh, it is a very well-known story. You know how it goes. It's a, it's a story of a farmer who is scattering seed uh, over various types of soil. And uh, that soil is, uh, some of it's not conducive for uh, fruitfulness, and some is. And um, this story, unlike many, uh, we have the advantage Jesus actually explains what he's talking about, which is wonderful and, uh, and very helpful. And so he, he kind of he explains it. His disciples say, I don't know what you just said. And, and he said, well, let me break it down for you. Of course, the farmer is the, the father. It's, it's God. And he scatters generously everywhere. Uh, Jesus, the person of Jesus, the gospel Jesus is the word. He became flesh. And so uh, the gospel hits all kinds of different kinds of soils. Um, It's a picture of the generosity and the unfair goodness of God because he allows every type of soil to experience it. It's for everybody. And he knows very well that some some soil is not ready, uh, not going to be fruitful, but it it gets it anyway. So um, it, it shows the generosity, the love, the compassion of our father. And then there's a soil, it's, it's uh, a type of soil that is conducive, that's ready, that's open, that's hungry for seed to be planted and, and is in fact fruitful. And I want to share just, just one verse uh, to start off today, eight, uh, Luke 8.15. And uh, this is a description that Jesus has of that good soil. It, he says this, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. And hold fast, hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. Um, that word is extremely important. So in this, in this life, bearing fruit, becoming who we truly are, um, sharing the love of Christ, being faithful, radiating the light of Jesus... Um, making a difference in this world, all of that requires, demands perseverance, endurance. It, it requires that of us. And we've spent weeks and weeks talking about endurance. And um, it's such an important thing. It's not necessarily something that we think about or consider much. But uh, there are seasons that demand endurance. From us. Now, there's certainly seasons that, that, that it's, it's easy, right? Uh, there's certain seasons in our life that everything's going according to plan. We caught, we caught the wave. Uh, life is easy, breezy, beautiful, cover girl. We got some momentum going. But then eventually, for all of us, if you've lived on this planet long enough, you're going you're gonna to hit a time where you need something in the reserve tank that maybe you don't have. Uh, we have to find a different gear in order to not throw in the towel, in order just to stay the course and to keep going. We require perseverance. Um, James chapter 1, 
which we spent a lot of time in in the beginning of the series, uh, it, 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 James tells us exactly the method by which God gives us endurance. Now, endurance is a gift of God's grace. And uh, James 1 says that we receive endurance as we face trials, tribulations, hardships. And through these hardships, James says, count it all joy when you face afflictions and faith, face difficulties. Because through that, your faith is tested. And then on the other side of your, the testing of your faith is this gift of endurance. Romans 5, uh, the Apostle Paul makes the declaration that, that through tribulation, through struggle, we are given perseverance or endurance. So it, is, it, it happens by way of struggle. Now, endurance is a gift of God's grace. It is not a result of our, a strength of our own personal will. It is, not, uh, it is not because of our own personal determination. Endurance is not man-made. True endurance to endure this life is only a gift from God. And, and here's the reality. Endurance begins at the end of me. And that's why this conversation is so important because uh, this struggle, the difficulty, going through tough stuff is what allows for us to cut through me and desperately cry out and reach out for Jesus. It's a great quote, God's office resides at the end of our rope. Uh, That's the truth. I decrease, he increases. Uh, As I end, he begins. Jesus meets me at the end of me, and that's why this conversation about endurance is, is a conversation about suffering. It's a conversation about struggle. It's a, it's a conversation about tr- trial and tribulation and difficulty. I know the, the version of Christianity that we like, that we prefer, is everything goes well. And then we get really freaked out when something doesn't go according to plan. We're like, God, where are you? Jesus promised, in this world, you're going to have trouble. This is, this is part of the equation. And the beauty of this conversation is, is not that, hey, no trouble's going to happen. The beauty of this conversation and the gift from God is that it's not going to be pointless. There is fruit. There is good news on the other side of this struggle. God doesn't necessarily rescue us from, from everything, but he rescues us in everything. He's doing something that is amazingly good during times that are amazingly bad. Uh, one of my favorite authors, his name is Robert Capon, who was a, an Episcopal priest and just a brilliant person with a great perspective. Um, Robert Capon said this, You don't get there on your own steam. You get there after you've run out of steam. There's nothing left to move you anywhere but the internal suction of a resurrection that draws everything out of nothing. I love that. You get there not by your own steam, but when you run out of steam. When you reach the end of you, there is something supernatural that is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that process of of getting to the end of ourself stinks. It is the worst. It hurts. It's scary. It's noisy. We flail a lot. I had a friend one time. I told him, I said, hey, buddy, 
you might want to quit flailing and drown already. One of the most beautiful stories, children's stories, that I can imagine, um, it's just amazing, brings tear to my, tears to my eyes just thinking about it. It's written by Marjorie Williams. It's called The Velveteen Rabbit. And if you're not familiar with it, oh, it's so good. And just the overview, it's, it's about um, a stuffed rabbit that's given to this little boy. And amongst all the newfangled toys, mechanical toys, uh, toys of the age, uh, the kid's not really interested in a stuffed rabbit. And so the, the rabbit feels pretty overlooked and, and uh, uh, underappreciated. And there's a, a wise, sage, old toy in the room that is the, 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 the wisdom, the Miyagi of the, the story. And uh, it's a hand-me-down toy that's been there forever. It's called the skin horse. And, and there's a beautiful conversation where the skin horse says to the rabbit, Hey, buddy, listen, uh, eventually, over time, you're loved so much that you become real. And that's the dream. In other words, love creates the reality of who you really are. And, and I like to share this, my favorite quote from the story. Uh, I'll share this with you this morning. It, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be uh, carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. That's what happened to me, actually. <laughs> and your eyes drop out. Now, that has not happened yet. And you get loose in the joints, and you get very shabby. But these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I think we could just close up church right now. That's absolutely so beautiful and so real. I, I love the phrase, you become. You become. Over time, you become. And it takes a long time. It, it doesn't happen to people who give up and break easily. It, it, becoming real, the real you, the full body version of who you truly are in light of how God's made you, that journey doesn't happen for the easily offendable. It, it, it doesn't happen to the people who are more consumed with being right than experiencing what's right. Uh, it doesn't happen for people who have short fuses necessarily. Over time, you become. And it takes time. And the, the conversation of becoming is uh, a, it's like a Latin word, metamorphosis. To become is to be transformed. To become something that, that you weren't necessarily before, but now you are. And that happens over a long period of time. Uh, they, there's an old saying that, that youth is wasted on the young. When you're young, you have energy and creativity and fearlessness and vibrancy and smooth skin and your back doesn't hurt and your knees don't crack when you get out of bed and you're full of exuberance and passion and you're zealous and, and you fight with anything that moves even if it's over stupid things that don't matter. 
And what you lack, though, is experience. What you haven't accomplished yet is, is a life full of scars and wounds and heartbreak and heartache and disappointments and failure. And that stuff, it can make you bitter, but it can also make you better. I, I look back on the young me, and, and it makes me sad sometimes. Because I wasn't necessarily always nice. Um, there was a lot of times where I was extremely selfish, extremely selfish. Uh, I made the whole point of the story me, and that's not nice. Uh, I stepped on people, and, and I, util- I used people to um, move myself further in this life. I was judgmental, I was critical, I was self-righteous, I was sanctimonious. Um, this year, uh, I just did the math the other day, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is my 25th year of ministry this year, which is insane to me. Time flies when you're being tortured. Um, I, t- I tell people when they ask how long I've been married, I'm like, I've been married. Uh, it's been an, an incredible 21 happy years of marriage. I've been married 22 years, but 21 of them have been great. That first year was awful. Amen, Sonia? All right. (laughs) That was a little too loud. Um, (laughs) But I, over time, you have your heart broken. And I got some wounds and some scars, and, and I've lived some life. And... And I got to say, even though it makes me sad who I was, thank God where I am. And, and I'm not always happy with me. I'm rarely happy with me, but I am thankful. I'm very, very grateful. And I do have some wisdom. Um, I, I, do, I have accumulated some experience. And I am softer and nicer and, and more thoughtful than I used to be. Um, but I don't have the energy I used to have. So it's kind of an interesting trade-off. And I, I think we, we look at the, the best of us, the best of our lives are kind of the heyday of, you know, you played high school, college football, and you, you used to be, you used to have uh, the milkshake that brought all the boys to the yard. Can I say that in church? Is that okay? Um, <laughs> uh, you you uh, used to have more charisma. And I, I you know, you always, we always reach that place where we're like, man, I'm just not what I, I don't have the same oomph the same chutzpah, the same juice that I used to have. Um, it, one of the saddest days uh, was, this is a month or two ago, I was cleaning out my, my, uh, my stuff, my, some clothes and shoes and stuff, and I had one pair of basketball shoes that, that, that was what it was for. I had one pair of shoes that well, I wore when I played basketball, and I got rid of them. I was like, I'm not going to play anymore. It was sad, because I grew up playing all the time, just you know, hours upon hours. And uh, you just, you, you reach these different stages of life, and it can be sad, but the truth is, we're better than we ever were. We're, we're, we're getting better, and we're becoming more and more useful, and we're, be, we're, we're reaching the end of ourselves. No one, no one talks to God more sincerely than someone on their deathbed. That is the most open and honest conversation we will ever have with God. So as we move closer to that day, 
We need him more. And that's a good thing. You know, there's a story of Abraham and and his wife Sarah where God's like, hey, I'm about to start something amazing with you. And they're like, start something? I'm married to B. Arthur. What are you talking about? She's going to have a baby. Like, what? That's not even, that's kind of gross. <laughs> um, I'm shabby. I'm loose in the joints. My back hurts. But that's when you become. That's when it gets good. Now, this is not an indictment to young people. It's an encouragement to stay the course. To not give up because it, it gets better and better over time. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily. The author of Hebrews compares this journey that we're on to enduring a race. It's a marathon. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says that we persevere this race, we we endure this race by considering how, how much Jesus endured for us in our place. And he says this, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Uh, I want to spend some time with that idea as we sort of begin to land the plane today. Uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. This is where we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read a few verses. And then we're just going to talk about it, sort of break it down today. Uh, This is what it says. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. We, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, starts evoking this old picture, this ancient story of Moses who was um, chosen to be a deliverer of the captives who were enslaved to the Egyptian rule. These are uh, his fellow countrymen, Jewish people. And he was um, chosen to be one who led them out of captivity, this bold leader who was unqualified but chosen. And then eventually, God chose him also to be a mouthpiece and uh, to deliver to the Israelites the perfect standard of a perfect God, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And so uh, Moses had a lot of interactions. He talked to God regularly and, and, you know, had all kinds of very historic moments, the burning bush, all these great moments. And uh, Moses had a I think a a very reasonable request. He said, I've heard your voice. Can I see your face? I want to see the face of God. Is that too much to ask? And God said, yes. Only a dead man can see my face. You can't, no flesh, no human flesh can view my face, look upon my face and live. 
And so I, 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 I don't want you eradicated yet. I've got plans for you. So God didn't have to compromise, but he does. And he says, I tell you what, what I'll do is uh, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll, I'll stand you in the corner. I'll put my hand over your back. And then as I walk by you, I'll remove my hand and you can see my passing glory for a moment in time. And Moses agreed. That happened. It transpired. Um, Moses turned, saw the passing glory of God, and that alone was enough to transfigure him, to transform him. The Bible describes this, his face started to shine, started to radiate. There was a physical result of this moment in time. And so he put a veil over his face uh, to hide that. Now, uh, I guess you would assume he did that so he's approachable and not some weirdo. But the Apostle Paul gives insight that I don't think we would have even thought about otherwise. He gives a different perspective that we don't get in the original story. That Moses was not covering his face to hide what is, but to hide what was and is fading. So the passing glory of God left a passing result in the face of Moses, and so he was self-conscious about it. He was special, and then what was so special is now fading and no longer there. And so he, the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians that he wore a veil to cover up what was fading. Now there's a bigger picture here that speaking to the law of God, there is glory to it. There was glory to it. But in the same way that that glory was ending, uh, the law was finite. It, it had an end date. It had an expiration date. And the expiration date was when Jesus came and fulfilled the law, closed the book, put it on the shelf, and now we live under a new covenant. We are no longer under the law. In fact, the Bible says the law was given that sin might increase. It doesn't help. It doesn't fix our problem. Our biggest problem had, it was above our pay grade. We could not work this out on our best day. So Jesus took our place. And now we live under the covenant of his blood, his grace. That's the good news of the gospel. It's beautiful. But the law for a moment had glory, had purpose, but it faded. And so you can't hold on to the old thing. You've got to embrace, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I'm creating something new in you. And so uh, Moses, his face represented that. Now, uh, you read this and you're like, how silly. Your, your face glows. That's inconvenient. You, you can't, you're always you know, dealing and managing with a glowing face. I can't imagine that kind of, you know, what kind of wattage your face is giving off. And, and, uh, and, and so people trying to sleep in the tent around you and they're like, turn off your face, dude. And it's really inconvenient. So I'm thinking it's fading, and that's good, that's good news, but he was self-conscious, and, and to me it's a little silly. But then I realized, no, I, I do that too. At some point, if we're honest, we all wear a veil of some type sometimes. We're all self-conscious. Even Adam, Adam and Eve, the, 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 the fall in the garden, the first thing that they did was cover up and hide. There's a self-consciousness about that. And so I, I do that. I like for people to see me in a certain light, and so a lot of times you wear a veil so that they perceive you the way that you want to be perceived, and it's sort of the fake it till you make it kind of mentality, and and we all do that. Now, 
the Bible says to this day, uh, when the law of Moses is read, when we go back to the law, when we consider the Ten Commandments and we put our focus on that, the Bible uh, shifts metaphors here and it says the face, the, the veil over the face that Moses had, and that's not you, you don't do that. But the Bible says that that veil lies over our heart. Now we've moved from the, the veil over the face to the veil over the heart. What's that about? Well, we mentioned last week, Romans 10.10 says it's with a heart a person believes. And so there's something that oftentimes covers up our ability to trust and believe in the gospel. There's something that separates. It's sort of like, historically speaking, the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God existed. There was a giant veil that separated general humanity from the presence of God. That same veil lies over our hearts oftentimes. And the Bible says that that veil is removed. Let's use this word. It's rent, ripped top to bottom when anyone turns to the Lord. Now, that, that move, that, that physical move, the turning to the Lord is the idea of repentance. To turn from me, turn to Jesus, that is repentance. Uh, another translation of that is metanoia. So it's the transformation of our mind to think differently, to consider things completely differently. But that begins with the turning to the Lord. Then the veil is removed as we turn to the Lord. In other words, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, the veil is removed, keeping us from believing, keeping us from faith. And so the veil is removed. We're able to trust And that happens as we move our focus off of the law, off of self-righteousness, onto Jesus and His gift of righteousness. The law of God has a purpose, had a purpose. It reveals the perfect standard and the perfect nature of a perfect God. It tells us that there's no wiggle room. The law of God is an indication that good enough is far from good enough. The law of God is meant to show us, instruct us, illuminate to us that God's standard is perfection and you cannot get there from here. Jesus said, somewhere on the mount, be perfect as my Father is perfect. So the standard of perfection is not our watered down Western idea of, yeah, it's Good enough. Close enough. You tried. It's a thought that counts. No. Action. Intention. Heart. Mind. The the, the Sermon on the Mount is doubling down on the standard of the law. Jesus raises the bar back where it belongs because we lowered it. And he says, hey, you haven't killed anyone. Congratulations. That's great. Have you ever been angry? You're equally guilty of murder. You haven't committed adultery. That's great. But have you ever lusted ever for one second because you're, you're just as guilty? So it is, there, there's no wiggle room. The law shows us that. But it has no power to make us like Jesus. 
it has no power to make us more like him. In fact, all it can do is bring despair, heartbreak. There's a huge, huge difference. And this is something that we need to discuss more in church. Uh, There's a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing him. There is a monumental difference about having the information, formulating your theory, formulating your belief system, formulating your theology, and meeting him. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 is uh, an amazing, there's, there's a lot of layers to this, but it's, it features two individuals who never really had the same perspective on Jesus, Peter and John. In fact, they're used in Scripture to show drastic ends of the spectrum. And yet, here they are together, Acts 4.13. They're in the presence of scholars and religious um, leaders and Pharisees. And, and this is the statement about them. As they, and that's the religious leaders, observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that those two guys were uneducated and untrained. Yet, they were amazed, and they began to recognize him as this, having been with Jesus. Look at, look at the uh, distinction. There is clarification. They don't have the training. They don't have the education. They don't have the resume. They don't, they don't have the pedigree. Yet, they are confident uh, knowing typically is what creates confidence. If you, if you show up to a test unprepared, you are insecure. If you show up to a test having studied for hours upon hours and you know the material, you feel confidence. Usually it's a knowledge, it's a head knowledge that creates confidence. In this case, that's not the case because it's clear. They're uneducated, they're untrained, they don't have the goods, they don't know. But they walk in confidence. Why? Because they've been with the man. They know him, not just about him. You can rattle off scripture after scripture after scripture, but it it does not mean that you know who Jesus is. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Another translation says knowledge may make us feel important, but it's love that builds the church. The, that contrast is throughout the Bible. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. This is not a, this is not a rush to gain the most information. This is not a pop quiz at the end of a life. This is entirely relational. This is about experiencing a relationship. Old Testament, God sent a list of rules and regulations and requirements. The new covenant which we live live under, God sent a person. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements to take that off of our shoulders and then what he offers to us is himself. The Bible says this. You you are saved, you are found righteous, you are redeemed. 
all that come to him. The Bible says, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you burdened? Are you tired? Are you burned out on religion? Are you sick of this? Are you, trying to, are you sick of trying to cross every I and, and dot every T? Then here's the invitation. Come to me. A person. Come find me. Come know me. We don't love others, which builds others up. We don't love others because we're told to. We don't love others because we're instructed to. We don't love others because we're supposed to. In fact, I would say that has never worked ever. You have to love me. That is, to me, that's, you just showed me the exit door. We love because we're first loved. It's experiential. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Because we receive that love, we trust that love. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Trusting and experiencing that love, expressing it to other people. Some of the meanest people you'll ever meet are the smartest people you'll ever meet. Some of the, the, the least, the most rigid and least graceful people that you know are way smarter than you are and want you to know it. Compassion comes another way. In fact, I would, it's interesting when you get these, these words and these phrases in the New Testament that, that you stumble on something that is in quite, quite offensive to a lot of people that just want to live out of their heads. And one of those statements is the fact that the gospel itself is foolishness. It's foolishness. It's silly. It's ridiculous. You're going to base your life on that? Well, if you skip forward, chapter 4, 2 Corinthians, you find the statement that the gospel itself is veiled. The gospel is veiled. So we can't even see the full beauty of the gospel and appreciate it because that itself is veiled, and it's veiled because our hearts are veiled. What causes, what causes the veil to be removed? Meeting Jesus seeing the person, understanding who he is, getting to know him. And the Bible says when you turn to Jesus, the, the, the veil is removed. What, what causes us to turn to Jesus? What gets us to that stage? Well, the Bible says that it's his repentance. I mean, I'm sorry, it's, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 2. It is his kindness, it is his goodness that, that leads us to want to turn and see Jesus. Not his rules, his regulations, not fear tactics. I, I, I heard all my life growing up, hey, you better get right or you're going to get left behind. Turn or burn, hell's hot and you've got a reservation. If you were to get struck by a, a running ostrich tonight, if you were to trampled by Marmosets. I, lo- I love using dramatic. <laughs> then where would you spend eternity? And, and I, fear tactics, they don't work with me. I tell you what works with me. When I look at my family, when I look at my daughter who turns 16 today, and I, I realize God let me be her dad 
how much does he love me? When I come here on a Sunday morning, Super Sunday, and I'm around people who have walked through some stuff and are heroes of this faith, who have maintained a community and the priority of family through thick and through thin, it reminds me of Jesus. When, when I was 10, 11 years old, my dad changed careers and it moved us from Chattanooga, Tennessee to, to North Carolina. 25 years later, I had changed careers and my parents moved from North Carolina to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Why? Because they love me and they love my wife and they mostly love my daughter. <laughs> but my dad shows up here before everybody else to set up this church, along with the legendary, the living legend, Larry Downer. And every, everybody else that gets involved and you know what? It's not because it's about them, it's because it's about something bigger than that. And that reminds me of Jesus. Their love and commitment to that, to me, reminds me of Jesus. The Bible says that we repent, we turn to Jesus because of the goodness. Where do we get the goodness? Where do we get the, the, the sample of goodness? The Bible says that through the fruit that we bear, people are able to taste and see that he is good. People find out how good Jesus is through you. I've said this for years. May we all be the sample people at uh, Sam's Club and Costco. Wearing the hazmat suits that they wear, the gloves and the hairnets, and handing out the delicious baby quiches so that you can taste and see that it's good. That's who we are. That's what we are. I'm not here to build my, my kingdom. I'm not here to build my church. I'm not here to build my legacy. I broker the legacy of Jesus. That is why I'm here. I want people to know him. I don't, I don't want to be famous. I don't want to, even though I'm singing at the Super Bowl tonight, it's not a big deal. <laughs> I'm humble about it. Um, I want people to taste and see that he is good. That veil is removed from us as we turn to Jesus and realize how much he loves us. With unveiled face, truly being ourself, able to be authentically, really ourself, not in the garden covering up, but just buck naked. <laughs> Here I am. God knows you. He knows your, he knows your faults and your flaws. There's no hiding. God's calling the garden hey guys, where are you, was not because he couldn't find them. Marco, it had nothing to do with that. He wanted them to realize, we're hiding from God? With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, the person of Jesus, that is the glory of God, the person of Jesus. And as we behold in the mirror, we are being transformed continually. And we are being transformed continually to look, live, and love more like Jesus. I'm going to close here. The beholding in a mirror. The, the, Paul uses the word mirror for a reason. Because typically, when you look in a mirror, who do you look at? This ugly mug. 
When you don't have hair, you find yourself looking in mirrors way less often. And sometimes I got a boogie or, or a broccoli because I just don't look in mirrors as much. But beholding in a mirror, it's almost, the, the Apostle Paul is making sure that we understand there is a right mirror and a wrong mirror. And if you look in the right mirror, who do you see? Jesus. What's the mirror? It's the word of God. It is the gospel. It is the reality of what Christ has come to do. In fact, he doubles down on this. Second um, Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to skip forward to chapter 4. We're going to close here. Verses 16 through 18. Um, just before we hit it, we can't transform ourselves. Transformation is not an enterprise of personal accomplishment or human strength. It's not willpower. It's not because you're smart. In fact, I would say it is it starts and begins at the end of ourselves. And this is what chapter 4 says, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not give up. We don't quit. But through our, though our outer man is decaying, we're getting shabby and loose in the joints. Our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction. <laughs> That's an understatement just a little diet, sugar-free affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of the glory of God, far beyond all comparison, while we look at not only these things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. The things that are not seen, or the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Where are our eyes fixed? On what's temporal or what's eternal? I love this. It's beautiful. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks, but I'm going to close here. Our outer man is decaying. We're getting tired. A lot of times, life is overwhelming and stressful, and we're, we're picking up. It's like it's snowballing. We pick up the worries of the world. We pick up the struggles and the stresses and the striving and the straining. We pick up all the things that are ugly. Sometimes we just get cynical. We're just like, man, life stinks. Then you die. It's awful. It happens to all of us. We all get there sometimes. Some people live there. I would say don't buy a condo there. Just visit there every once in a while. It's okay. Our outer man is decaying. But this is the beauty. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Every, his mercies are new every morning. Every day we're being renewed the wellspring of life. Where is that? Proverbs 4.23. It's, it, above all else, guard your heart because that's the wellspring of life. What does that mean? What you believe. Who you trust. Where your faith is. And that faith is fueled by the gospel. We've got to hear it. The faith, and this is, uh, we've got to get this. Faith is not fueled by being clever. Faith is not fueled by being right. A lot of people fight all day long to be right. Well, I know. Real faith begins when you say, no, I don't. The success of winning this race is from the starting block saying, I can't win it. <laughs> I'm going to trip and I'm going to fall and I'm going to be awful at this. The greatest admission that that we could ever have is this. I can't. 
I got nothing. Because when you reach the end of yourself, there is, a, there is something that lifts us in, his, in our weakness. His strength is perfect. There's something that this holy compensation that comes, comes in and Jesus says, now let's get to work. But it's in our commitment to letting go and letting God trusting him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves and as we do that as we behold him as we fix our eyes on him as we consider him as we stay with him as we keep relationship with him uh, as above all everything else we fight for this connection as we do that as we abide in him we are being transformed in fact the new person that he created on the inside of us when we when we met him when we were saved He's turning that inside out and we are becoming more and more practically what we are positionally. The new me, the real me, I am becoming real. You become. It takes time and it takes scars and it takes wounds and it takes heartache and it takes disappointment. But you become. And this world is a better place because of it because Jesus is shining directly right through you and there's no veil that contain it. There's no veil that can hold it back. And it doesn't fade because it's his glory, not ours.